So I'm not only speaking for us, I'm speaking for, I think, the Church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. And the vision that the church had uh, at, the at the very beginning of the ecclesiastical time back in the first century when the book of Acts uh, was written is really the vision that we need to have in the 21st century, 2,000 years afterwards. And I'm taking the passage from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 as a kind of an emblematic um, sort of a foundational passage for us to dwell on. And from there, I'm going to take uh, my uh, meditation this morning. So I'll read it again as I did last Sunday. Acts 2, 42. The church, they, the disciples, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's important. The teaching, talking about the doctrine, the, the foundational beliefs, uh, the teachings of the apostles, which is what we follow because these uh, letters... And these other books that are in the New Testament are from the apostles. And we follow an apostolic teaching. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, that, that is community, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. These elements comprised some of the things that these people valued that they gave importance to, and they did it every day. They repeated it. They practiced it every day. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. It was a miracle-oriented church. It was a church where the power of the Holy Spirit was manifest, where things um, that were supernatural in nature were in evidence. All the believers were together. And had everything in common. There was intimacy. There was generosity of heart. There was a commitment to being together as a family. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Generosity again. Uh, selflessness. Giving and sharing of the blessings that we receive. And every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts, they gathered in the church, the, the church community was a central place for this, this uh, community of believers to come together. They had fellowship. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. When the church does what the church does, it gains favor, it gains uh, respect, it gains admiration. It gains a desire of others to come into the community. And the final result of all of this beautiful living was that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Praise the Lord. And so I want to continue. Let me just um, back up a little bit. Uh, last Sunday, I discussed three key elements that should comprise, that I believe that to a large extent already make up this congregation and that should make up the life of any spirit-filled congregation. And by the way, if anybody asks you, you know, what is the vision of Lion of Judah? What is the mission? I'm asked that all the time. And then many times we engage in all kinds of reflection as to what kind of a congregation we are and, you know, what are our guiding Values. What are our governing values? What is our mission? What is our vision? And I find that many times we repeat these things, but somehow it doesn't quite stick. And I get asked the same questions again. 
What is our mission? What is our vision? What are we all about? Well, this is what we are all about. These um, meditations that I'm engaging in are the values that I, as your senior pastor, that all the pastors in this church, the leadership in this church, uh, embrace as foundational values for our church. And not only do we embrace it, you know, rhetorically and say it and declare it and write about them, but I believe that we practice them. I believe that we put them into practice as best as we can. I believe that these are the sustaining values that we engage in every day. And if I'm here this morning preaching about these things, it's precisely because one of the things that I believe is that if you believe in these values, you have to reinforce them. You have to teach them over and over again. You have to... Um, engage in them and put them into practice whenever you gather and all the things that you do. And so I want you to ask yourself, are we doing these things as a congregation? Are we pursuing these things in our program as a church? Are these the things that we engage in, in uh, the various ministries that we have, in whenever we come together as a congregation? Are these the things that this church seems to be emphasizing and dedicating its energy, its money, its uh, leadership uh, energy to? All right? Because that's part of the whole thing. It's not enough just to say, oh, we're, we're committed to this. Are we seeking to do it? Do our programs and do our ministries reflect these commitments? Is there alignment, to use a good institutional leadership word these days, is there alignment between what we are saying that we value and the things that we dedicate time to. Ask yourself if this morning, in the service that we have engaged in, in this time that we have engaged in, we are um, expressing at least one or two or maybe all of these values because that's, that's what it's all about, okay? So, you know, if somebody asks you, well, what does your pastor believe? What does the church believe? What is Lion of Judah all about? What are the things that you consider valuable? Well, say, you know what? There's some really uh, um, illustri illustrative uh, sermons, sermons that illustrate, sermons that um, express what our church believes in. Go to our website, and, uh, you know, if you can tell them these dates and the, the, the uh, titles are there. These are messages that I, I think are visionary messages in the sense that they express what I believe as your senior pastor and what this church believes. And last Sunday... I mentioned, I got to, to mention three different values. Number one, I said that we need to be a prophetic community. That is, uh, we need to be a sign to the city. We need to be a church that is intriguing, a church that provokes a certain kind of a question as to why are these people the way they are? Why do they believe the things that they believe? A church uh, that is prophetic should be a distinctive church. It is a church that is countercultural, but it is also a church that reflects life of the kingdom in such a way that people are kind of wondering, you know, what enables them to be the way they are. So, if, for example, we are a multicultural, multi-ethnic church, if we are a church that is made up of people from all kinds of walks of life, if we are a church that has all kinds of different levels, uh, socioeconomic levels, that a person who is homeless or uh, in the streets um, or opioid addicted or has had a difficult life, is, are they present? And also, let's say, are there people who don't come from that uh, background? 
People who maybe, you know, they have it all together as far as their finances are concerned, as far as their professional life is concerned. And are these people living together? Are they loving each other? Are they learning from each other? Are they blessing each other? Do these different sectors of society that normally do not coincide, are they able to be together? These are the things in a polarized community, such as the one that we live in today in America, that you don't find. We were commenting on that last Friday in this gathering of believers. You know, people say... Sunday morning is the most segregated moment in all of the week in America. Why? Because you'll have white Christians uh, meeting in one particular church. You'll have African-American Christians in another church. You'll have Latinos in another church. And even, let's say, within my own Latino community, for example... You have uh, Salvadorians usually in one church, Guatemalans in another church, Caribbean people, Puerto Ricans and Dominicans in another church. That is within just the Latin American. Even within the African uh, community as well. You may have Africans, you may have African Americans, you may have people from the Caribbean. It It is a polarized world, even the church. Well, I think a church that is intriguing, that is prophetic, should be a place where people from all walks of life come together where you'll have an African-American sitting next to a white person. Uh, You'll have a a lower-income person uh, sitting right next to a high-income individual. You'll have a a relatively uneducated individual sitting next to somebody with a PhD, and they're all loving each other, unified, united by the power of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about, being a prophetic community. And it should be other things as well. It should be many things. It should be young people with uh, the elderly as well. I praise God for um, churches that are, let's say, you know, uh, young adult oriented. There are many of those these days. It's a genre that has sort of uh, developed in the past few years here in America. Churches with, you know, young adults, oriented to young adults. Very, and very few people my age or even younger than that with an ethos that is oriented toward the young adults. And praise the Lord for that because they're doing a great job reaching that generation. But you know what? For me, it's not either or. I, I much prefer a church where you have multi-generational individuals, where you have a young person next to an older person, uh, all learning from each other. The old need the energy that the young have. And the young, uh, uh, let's say the, 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 the old, the, the elderly need, the older people need the energy that the young have. But the young people also need the wisdom, the experience, even the brokenness that life has brought and the experiences of uh, learning that uh, the old can also bring. And I, I really believe that the Lord's um, desire is for churches that are multi-generational, multi-socioeconomic, multi-racial, multi-ethnic, and even multilingual. That is being a prophetic community. I don't want you to forget the point, which is that churches should be places that people see happening things that in the normal world, you don't see. And that then people are provoked and say, what enables, what, what, what fuel are they using? What glue is keeping these people together? What power is enabling them to do these things that they do? And that's what I mean by being a prophetic, intriguing, exceptional sign, you know, standing out in the city, saying, hey, this is what life is about. And this is what we need to aspire to. And we need to have that God that makes that possible. Do I make myself understood? And you must ask yourself, are we that kind of church? We haven't gotten there fully yet. But I believe that we are engaging in that. And that we make a lot of effort to make that possible. 
And that, that churches in the 21st century, particularly in America, polarized America, should be prophetic places of unity, of love, and so on and so forth. So we need to be a prophetic community. And I'm, I am going through this again, but, you know, reiterating it and expressing it in a different way from a different perspective, but that you'll get it so that it will be reinforced in your minds that we can then continue from there. Number two, I said that we need to be an orthodox people. A, a Bible-oriented people with solid doctrine, with solid teaching. We need to be inclined toward orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means that we adhere to the historical faith as it has been preached in the Bible and to the church through the 2,000 years of its existence. Orthodox. When you hear something that is orthodox, it means that it, it, it aligns with uh, um, something that is ancient, something that is accepted as normative. And so we need to be an orthodox congregation that emphasizes the Word of God, the Scriptures, the value of Scriptures. And we need to be inclined toward, it, toward that. It's not enough just to be sort of uh, vertical. You know, I think the world right now is so against true doctrinal uh, straightness and rectitude that it's not enough to even just be, you know, vertical. You need to be inclined because the power of the enemy is pushing you, you know, against that. And so, you know, I believe that it's not enough these days just to have good, sound doctrine. I think you need to be militantly doctrinal. You need to be militantly in your face, biblical, because it's not enough it's not enough for me just to assume that, you know, um, you, you'll get it by osmosis in terms of the Bible. You know, many churches these days, they don't want to talk about the doctrine of the Bible because it's uncomfortable, because it hits us. I mean, sometimes I preach things that I'm the first one who has to struggle when I hear these things. It hits me in the face and in the heart before I even preach it. But am I going to stop preaching it because of that? No way. I simply have to align myself more and more to what the Bible says. You know, many churches don't want to preach the gospel anymore because it makes people uncomfortable, and we don't want to make people uncomfortable. We don't want them not to come to the church. We want them to come to our church so that they'll give their tithes and that they'll occupy one of the seats in the church. And so we down, sort of we, we uh, lower the volume of the teaching and the doctrine. And some churches don't preach certain subjects because, uh, you know, they, they scandalize people. And, and pastors have adopted this attitude. You know, it's a Faustian bargain. It's a demonic ploy that the devil says, you know, I'll give you people if you don't preach the doctrine. And so sometimes we have relegated doctrine and teaching to small groups in the church. And with that, we console ourselves and reassure, we reassure ourselves that we're not compromising the gospel. But then what about all the people who come on Sunday who don't come to these uh, moments? No, and I think also that we should not uh, draw a, a kind of a department for solid biblical teaching and, and another department just for generic teaching. I think the people of God come and they should be instructed, they should be taught, they should be confronted, and they should be encouraged as well to live a godly, holy life. And so we need to, we need to be an Orthodox church. And, you know, again, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that I, I want to stress to us all. You know, to my mind comes uh, this image of uh, these uh, large uh, trucks that carry huge loads on the highway. 
And uh, they're long, you know, they have their, their beds. The bed in the back is very long because that's where they put, you know, the whatever you, you, you put on there, the containers and, or the heavy loads. And you'll see that these trucks that carry these heavy loads, um, the platform that, it, that is in the back, it, it's not straight. It is like this. It's warped. It is, it is bent like that. Why, why do they do that? Because the load sometimes they carry is so heavy that if the bed were simply uh, horizontal, it might bend. So it needs to have a little bit of a, an upward incline. Kind of, they need to be convex, to use a, uh, a big word, in order to you know, have more supportive power. Well, you know, I think that that's the way we need to be as the people of God in the 21st century. Where everything militates against sound doctrine, we need to be especially doctrinal. Because our people are under attack for their beliefs. And they need to be encouraged. They need to be reassured. They need to be taught and reinforced the word of God. When our young people go to college and their professor says, you know, God doesn't exist. Or God came out of an ape. Or rather, man came out of an ape. Or, you know, the Bible is an out-of-date uh, document that reflects only uh, the values and the beliefs of the centuries that it was written in. They need to know different and they need to have received antibodies in the church. And so that's, this is why the church needs to be orthodox, but in a militant sort of way. It's not enough just to be orthodox in a kind of subtle sort of way. So we need to be a prophetic community, an orthodox people. And we need to be a place of vitality and transformation. Why? Because it's easy to simply be orthodox. And the Pharisees were orthodox. The Pharisees, they, they were doctrinal but doctrine is all they had. They, had not, they didn't have the power of God. This is what Jesus said. You know, you have the letter, but you don't have the power. Jesus had the power, and this is why people followed him. So churches, you know, that are just doctrinal, they can become legalistic. They can be idolatrous of the letter of the word. You need the enlivening power and vitality of the Holy Spirit, giving life to the word. You see? And so, churches that are merely fundamentalist, and I have respect for that word. Don't get me started on that part. Things. Fundamentalism is a good word. We need to go to the foundations of the word. And our found, fundamentalist brothers back 70, 80 years ago, when they were fighting, contending for this uh, liberalism that was creeping up, and look where it has taken uh, evangelicalism in America, they stood their ground. And they created institutions that were biblically oriented. They created radio stations. They created seminars, seminaries. Um, they were militant and in your face about doctrine and about correct teaching. That's what has kept America from going the way that Europe has gone, by the way. It is this fundamentalist, uh, Bible-believing, in-your-face, aggressive Christians who stood for the faith. But I want to remind you that if all we have is just a fidelity to the Bible and to the letter of the word, then we're dead. Churches need to be places where the power of God is in manifestation. They need to be places of joy. They need to be places of laughter. They need to be places of celebration. They need to be places where people eat together, where they have fun, where they let their hair down, where they don't take themselves too seriously, where they know that, um, you know, we're all sinners and that at the end of it all, even as we strive for holiness, we also have to know that it's a long-term process. 
And meanwhile, we have to also celebrate, take time to rejoice, take time to have fun, take time to go out into the country and do a good hiking or have a good dinner or whatever. Enjoy nature, enjoy creation, enjoy culture. All of these things are important. So churches need to be, yes, orthodox, but they also need to be places of transformation where people are finding the Lord, where people are um, leaving their habits and, uh, and their addictions, where there are testimonies that God is at work in their lives that they're being renewed, that they're being transformed according to what we said in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We do not conform to the world, but we are perpetually being re- uh, transformed through the renewal of our mind. So churches need to be all of that, vitality, transformation, celebration, joy, life, power, energy. These are things that churches need to be beyond just being orthodox. So I'll go into a fourth thing. Now, churches need to be places of Love, compassion, and grace. You will see, you will notice that there's a logic behind these uh, different uh, elements. You know, I said we need to be orthodox, but we need to also be vital and energetic and transformative because one thing complements the other. And now I'm saying that we need to be a place of love, compassion, and grace, even as we call people to holiness, to conforming ourselves To the Word of God, we also need to be places of compassion, of grace, and of love. And you'll see why these two things are in relationship to each other as well. Even as we preach a message of truth and holiness, we should balance this with a message that recognizes, you know, that we're all all sinners. We're hampered by our human nature and that we need to tolerate and love each other as we journey toward the goal of becoming holy and acceptable to God. There are many churches that, you know, in their desire to be orthodox, they forget about the dynamic nature of the process of sanctification. There are churches that take the sinners, and as Jesus said, they make them twice the sinners that they were when they came in. Because they are uh, dependent on a a theology of fear, a theology of abuse, of... uh, Uh, sanctifying people through fear, whipping them in the back all the time and uh, filling them with fear about the devil, about the devil, about hell. Um, If they fall, they simply get kicked on the floor or they're displayed for the whole congregation to uh, be shamed, you know, in their sins. Uh, Places that don't have patience with the sinner as he or she engages in the long, lengthy process of sanctification. And I think one of the things that we need to learn, even as we aspire to be a a church of of, uh, orthodoxy and a church of transformation that leads to holiness, this third piece of the mechanism, and they, they play together, is this idea that we need to be a community. And let me use a word that might surprise you. We need to be an affirming Community. Now, that is used in a very uh, uh, kind of a devi- devious way in the world. You know, churches that are affirming and inclusive. Yeah, and I, we, we need to be both. And, and if anybody tells you, is your church uh, uh, inclusive? There's another way, affirming and something, something else. Open. open and affirming. Open and affirming. If somebody asks you, hey, is your church open and affirming? What are we going to say to them? Of course. Yes, we are. We are open to souls coming in just as they are and then opening themselves up to the Holy Spirit, transforming them into what God needs them to become. 
And we are a church that is committed to providing every person that walks in with the tools, the encouragement, the teaching, and the experience of the Holy Spirit that they require to become the people that they need to become. Now, we are not affirming in the sense of telling people, hey, you know, God loves you just as you are. Don't worry about it. You know, just let it all hang out. It's okay. Be yourself. You know, we're all sinners and, uh, you know, we're all warped anyway, so don't, don't kill yourself too much. God accepts you as you are. And I have to say, God accepts you as you are in order to give you space to become what he wants you to be and what he needs you to be. It's a different thing altogether, okay? But we need to be a place where people come in broken, addicted, bound by sin and by a life that has led them into all kinds of traps, mental traps, emotional traps, even neurological traps. Because when you practice sin over a long period of time, it becomes neurology. It becomes part of your brain. You know, behavior leads to uh, um, habits. Habits lead to outlooks. And then habits are, are in, in, entrenched and reinforced. And the more you practice a habit, the more your brain, your neurology wires itself according to your behavior. Did you know that? That the brain is the most plastic, moldable thing that you could ever imagine. It can be molded. It can be changed. And so that habits over a long period of time, and particularly experiences that are really intense and searing and powerful, they become neurology. And actually, your brain is reconfigured. Psychiatrists will tell you that now, in the light of all the knowledge that we have about neurology, about, about neurobiology, and about the brain, it is very clear that the brain is reconfigured in the light of experiences and practices in the course of one's life. So the brain is changed. And so, we need to be uh, congregations that understand the, 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 the complexity of the process of sanctification. Um, sanctification is a gradual process. Even when the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit needs to be involved, but even when the Holy Spirit is involved in giving people a powerful experience of transformation, there will still be areas of life that are the result of that practice that will need to be transformed. So let me give you an example. A person has lived a life of a drug addiction for, you know, decades, for example. They have been abused sexually or, or physically. And um, over the course of many years and decades, um, their, their brain has become wired toward certain pleasures, certain habits, Center, several, uh, certain mental outlooks and attitudes. And um, they come into the kingdom. God may free them. Let's say in, the, in, in, in many circumstances you see them, but, uh, you know, it, it, we, call, we call them miracles because they're not everyday happenings. God may free an individual from drug addiction or addiction to nicotine or to pornography. And overnight, in a moment's time, and that can happen, in an encounter with the power of the Holy Spirit, a person may be free completely from drug addiction. But you know what? That person who has been living in that habit with all the implications and all the consequences and the ramifications of being addicted, which means the people that they uh, uh, surrounded themselves with, the, uh, the experiences that they did not have or that they had, the lack of nourishment in the ethical realm, in the psychological realm, 
the wounds that they were um, uh, seared with, all of that, it's not there. Or it may be there in a negative sort of way. And then people will need a long period of time to rewire their brain, their habits, to uh, put aside fear, to put aside addictive behaviors, to put aside a sense of guilt, uh, to put aside uh, anger and frustration that they have because of all the abuse that they received, to put aside um, resistance to authority, which is one of the biggest things that a lot of individuals who are living that life have, rebelliousness, anger, resistance to authority and to truth. These are habits, these are attitudes, these are parts part of the personality that don't sort of magically, you know, God doesn't take a magic wand, hit the person who has just been freed from drug addiction and a life of, let's say, homelessness, and all of a sudden they are perfect saints, forgiving everyone and, you know, full of confidence about themselves and, uh, you know, uh, huge self-esteem and so on and so forth. No, that takes time. That requires a rewiring of the personality and of the brain. And congregations are required that will be astute, psychologically, uh, even psychiatrically, and that will understand these, these dimensions of the process of sanctification. I think the word sanctification is a very spiritual word, and we tend to over-spiritualize it. And we don't realize that, you know, the body, the neurology, the physicality of the person is very important. We need to take that into account. I think you, we have a lot of congregations that are super spiritual. So you take a person who has practiced homosexuality for a very long time in their life, sometimes even when they were kids, and uh, they have been abused, they have been sexually abused, and so on and so forth. They have lived a life of a, you know, homosexual practice. And so you have congregations that uh, that individual, touched by the Holy Spirit, comes into the life of the church. That church, being an Orthodox congregation, preaches the gospel to them. That church, being a, a Spirit-filled congregation, imparts hands on them, declares the healing of God. And uh, that, the, that individual may experience a deliverance. But you know what? Then we think that, okay, now that's it. That individual will no longer experience temptation. That individual will be able to walk into a, a gay discotheque and, you know, just be a, par a paragon of virtue. He will be totally impervious to any kind of uh, temptation. My brothers and sisters, let me tell you, I've met a lot of spirit-filled individuals who have been delivered from homosexuality. I have met pastors who have been delivered from homosexuality. I have met individuals who have been married after having lived years of a homosexual lifestyle and, and have children and are full of the Spirit and are full of the Word of God and they still deal with homosexual tendencies and temptations. I have met individuals who have national and international ministries ministering to ex-homosexuals, having themselves been freed from a gay lifestyle. And they do not trust themselves when they travel preaching that deliverance message to be alone in a hotel room or to travel alone. They travel with a companion and they are accountable to someone in terms of their use of the internet and so on and so forth. Why? Because they understand this will be a struggle. Despite the fact that God has freed you, you still will wrestle 
And I am too honest in my way of seeing things to, to speak otherwise. I could sit here and give you the praise God, hallelujah, holy roller thing. But I would be remiss if I did not share with you that the struggle for sanctity and for holiness is a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. Even when you have been delivered. Because how many of us can say, oh, I've been delivered from heterosexual temptations. Come on. You know, yes, you are sanctified. You are full of the Holy Spirit. You know holiness. But we deal with our mental life. We deal with images. We deal with inclinations. We deal with uh, situations that test our resolve. We deal with having to take a thought and just set it aside when it comes and tries to settle down into our psyche. And the same privilege that we give ourselves as heterosexuals that struggle with these things, we should give also to others who deal with other kinds of things. Whether it's depression, anxiety, homosexual tendencies, uh, womanizing, anger, physical abuse, and so on and so forth. It's the same process. We're all in the process of sanctification, you know. And this is why, aside here, I, I, uh, sometimes I get upset and uh, angry at individuals who throw stones at the church and say, oh, look at the church preaching against homosexuality, against uh, this or that. They're just, um, you know, uh, self-righteous bigots because they practice these things and look at so-and-so <clears throat> who fell at such and such a time. Well, you know, we should not let ourselves be um, blackmailed, emotionally blackmailed. The church has been falling throughout the centuries. And the church has been preaching the same message of holiness and redemption always. We should not let... The, we are human beings who have, understand one thing. Yes, we are sin prone, but we admit our sins. We confess before the Lord and we believe that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all impurity. So we do not pretend to be perfect, but when we fall, we run toward the blood. And we ask for the grace of Christ to cover us. That is the difference. The difference between the church and the world is not that the church is somehow perfect and sin-free and that the world is uh, sinful. No, I think the difference in the church is that the church is made up of people who sin and I, who are committed to holiness, but who also understand that the blood of Christ, we admit, we confess our sins. We do not try to normalize our sins. We don't try to call sin normal. And then when we fall, we run to the throne of Christ and we beg forgiveness and we commit to living a life of holiness again. That is the difference. So don't let yourself be intimidated by people who say, oh, the church is full of sinners anyway. I'll say, yeah, absolutely right. And the church should be full of sinners because if the church is only full of people who are supposedly holy, then it's not doing its work. The church should have people all the time coming in that are in process. And so we need to be congregations. We need to be places that are both uh, seeking holiness, but also places that are very aware that the process of sanctification is a lengthy thing. And I'm going to leave it there. I, I expected to do two uh, values, but uh, we'll, we'll just do one, and I'll, I'll continue with it next Sunday. Churches need to be places that are wise and understanding about the nature of sanctification. We need to be places of grace. We need to be places of compassion, of love, of patience, of uh, understanding of those who struggle, including ourselves. So, Father, we embrace that this morning.
we embrace that value of compassion, grace, patience, and of understanding that we ourselves, we, I, need your compassion.